Today's video was recorded on February 8th, 2022, and this is the fifth in our series through the book of Exodus. In this lesson, we look at Moses as a type or model of Messiah, that is, someone appointed by God for a particular task that involves the redemption of God's people and his creation. Exodus tells us through story that Moses has a high sensitivity and intolerance for injustice, and this character trait makes him the perfect candidate to become Israel's redeemer and lawgiver. And then we're going to compare the details of Moses in Exodus to the details in the Gospels, particularly Matthew's Gospel, about Jesus. And including these details in their Gospel writings helps their first century audience understand that Jesus is coming as the last Redeemer of Israel, just as Moses was the first. Now, if you're watching on YouTube, please subscribe to our YouTube channel by clicking that red subscribe button below. Or if you happen to be listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can follow our channel. And we would appreciate it if you just took a moment or two to rate the podcast and let us know how we're doing. So we hope you enjoy today's lesson on Moses as a type of Messiah. We're going to take a look at Moses as a type. And I think all of you are somewhat familiar with a type. Moses is a type of Messiah. And, of course, Jesus, Jesus is the Messiah. So he's going to encapsulate all of the attributes or characteristics of Messiah. But Moses is a type. And this is important as um, we look at the Bible and understand how the Old Testament connects to the New to get the fullest view of Jesus as the Messiah, or in Greek, the Christ. So Moses, he's, a, he's appointed for a particular task, and the task is just like um, God's actions uh, throughout the Old Testament are about deliverance. Your God is in the process of delivering the people, and he is in the process of redeeming creation, and Moses is one piece of that. But as we'll see, the characteristics repeat themselves going forward. So he is a deliverer of his people. And then what we're going to do is, so we'll look at him, and then we'll compare that to Jesus, who is the Messiah, the perfect Messiah. And the gospel writers are... Uh, immersed in Moses as this larger-than-life figure. Uh, the gospel writers, the disciple, Paul. So when we read the, the gospels, particularly Matthew, he's, he's emphasizing many Moses things. And so you never come out and say directly, Jesus is the Messiah, but he lines up with all the messianic um, types that are in the Old Testament. And that's how you tell that Jesus is the Messiah. It's really, I think the indirectness, you know, Westerners want us to say, why didn't you just say it directly? But, you know, an Easterner wants you to internalize it and then discover it yourself. And that process is very powerful. We'll talk about it at some point later in Exodus. Uh, they call it, there's a, there's a transformation from above and a transformation from below, or I'm sorry, a revelation from above and a revelation from below. The revelation from below is where you transform in the process of discovery. So 
That's powerful. That's why indirect is is powerful. Okay, uh, our painting for the background tonight. This is um, I'm gonna guess Dutch Ludwig de Deister, somewhere around the end of the 1600s, 1680 to 1690, and what he's depicting is Moses driving away the shepherds who were harassing Jethro's daughters. That's in the reading that we'll do tonight. So that's the painting. He picked one of the more obscure stories. Most of the paintings are like the burning bush or uh, water from a rock. But All right, so this will be part five of our tour de exodus. And, of course, Moses as a type of Messiah. So just to refresh our memories, a type is like a model. Uh, it's a pattern of something. Um, so we find these patterns in the Old Testament, and then they're repeated, and they'll all come together in Jesus. It's like kind of when Paul says, you know, when the Old Testament is read, there's like a veil. You can't see the full story. And when you pierce the veil by looking through the lens of Christ, you can understand the Old Testament much better. It all comes together in Christ. So. The Old Testament isn't fully complete without the New. The New Testament can't be fully understood without the Old. So that this is why, of course, it's so important to, to wrestle with all of this stuff in Exodus. Um, so Moses is a type. It's a pattern that God is laying out, right? He knows what the Messiah looks like, and then he gives us images of that along the way in the Old Testament. Uh, and as I mentioned so that the New Testament writers explain Jesus as the Messiah, or the Christ, that's Greek, Messiah, Hebrew, without using explicit definitions. Um, everything is in the action, and we'll see that in Exodus, actually, all through Exodus. They, don't, they barely give you a definition. Okay, and then, because Jesus fits the pattern, you say, aha, there he is. I think, uh, to think about a type, Jesus uses the phrase, greater than. One who's greater than Jonah is here, right? He's like a prophet that's greater than Jonah. Jonah's a type. Jesus is the fulfillment of the type. Uh, one who's greater than Solomon. Um, so Jesus comes in and says, okay, now I'm going to fulfill or fulfill more than what you've seen in the Old Testament. Okay, so just as an example, he's a redeemer. This is Moses. He's a redeemer or a deliverer. He, de he delivers his people. That's what we see in the entire Exodus story. Um, Moses is the first redeemer of Israel. Jesus is the last redeemer of Israel. Uh, we notice he's rejected by his people. That's in the text for tonight. Who made you judge and ruler over us? And oh, by the way, God is going to make him ruler and judge over you. So therefore, you have to listen to him. Um, He's rejected by his people. Uh, in Genesis, Joseph is rejected by his brothers. Uh, David's rejected. Jesus is rejected. So it's part of this. There's something about messianic or fulfilling this role where the people don't quite get it at first. Um, we notice that he's a covenant mediator. That's obviously a huge one in Exodus. And what does Jesus do? Using almost the exact same words as Moses. Jesus is going to be the covenant mediator for the new covenant that's being instituted. 
And then it's really interesting how um, the when the we'll see. I don't I don't know if we'll actually read it tonight, but it's it's in the text that we're reading. As Moses is trying to break up a fight, it's this strange twist where the the Hebrew guy says, "Who are you, our judge and ruler?" Right, and then Moses goes off to the land of Midian only to be commissioned by God to be their judge and ruler. And then if you read in Acts chapter 7, which is Stephen's speech, he quotes that. Because who's Jesus? He's the judge and ruler, but they rejected him. Right? So ultimately, when he becomes the Christ, or he as the Christ, he's the judge and ruler. So it's this interesting uh, twist that happens. God puts him at his right hand. Same thing as as Moses. So this is where you start seeing these things that are happening uh, back and forth. And of course, Jesus, to be sure, he is the archetype, meaning he's at the he's the pinnacle of the types. So anything that points towards Messiah is fulfilled in Jesus. You can't go beyond Jesus as the Messiah, the deliverer. So if I just give you a couple examples, and I think. Yeah, this is still under number one on your handout. Um, the first, well, not the first one, but you see is uh, Joseph. Joseph is a deliverer for his people. And if you think about Joseph as a deliverer, well, he's betrayed, just like Jesus. He suffers. He's the suffering servant. He's rejected by his brothers. Uh, and a very interesting thing, Joseph is concealed away. His identity is concealed. And for Jesus, just like Joseph, Jesus is concealed to his brothers. So if you think about the tribes of Israel, they reject him and he's concealed. So, hey, if we're going to pray for anything, pray for Israel that they would see Jesus as the Messiah that he is. Because that's the revealing of the Messiah, just like Joseph was revealed to his brothers. So um, Joseph delivers Israel to become a nation. And so you can see he's a type. Uh, Moses, of course, is a type. So if you're going to talk to your first century Jewish audience that you're Messiah, you do things to re- that would remind them of Moses. How about climb a mountain to teach? That might be a good one. That would be a reflection of what Moses does. So he is, of course, Jesus is just like Moses as the next redeemer of Israel. And that would all be going on internally to bring to mind, aha, is he saying he's just like Moses? Another one, of course, is David. Was David rejected by his brothers? Yeah, in a sense. I mean, they all nobody wanted to pick him. He's rejected by his family, didn't think he was up to the task. He eventually becomes the king. And Jesus in, like the son of David, uh, that becomes a messianic term. So um, you can see what's happening is all of these are filtering to a, a pinnacle where Jesus is now seated uh, as the perfect Messiah in a way. And I think it's important, without diminishing the divinity of Jesus, is to look at the characteristics that make somebody a, a type like Joseph or Moses or David or any of the other ones that show up, what are those characteristics that all human beings can emulate? So we'll see tonight, Moses has a strong 
intolerance for injustice. Well, any of us can have that, and we all should, and Jesus certainly had that. So I don't know that we do enough talking about character, and so what we're going to do tonight is talk about Moses' character, how the Bible communicates character to us, and then in a way, we're supposed to then go emulate that, just like we would emulate Jesus' character in his humanity. We can never be divine. So, what type of person is God going to lead or choose to lead the liberation of his people, right? They're being oppressed, and so you choose somebody who's the, the ideal person for the task is going to have an intolerance for injustice. And the book of Exodus tells us that in story, just gives us very, three short stories back to back to back, all in the matter of seven verses, and every one of them is an example of Moses' intolerance for injustice. He's not going to put up with it. So if you're going to send somebody in front of Pharaoh, you need somebody who has that real strong sense of injustice and will stand up to the, to the tyrant. Not everybody does, but this is who God chooses. So we'll see three stories in a row, uh, all within, it's, it's verses 11 to 17 in chapter 2. So if you want to turn and if you have your Bible and you want to go to Exodus 2, there's the Egyptian taskmaster. We'll talk a little bit about this, probably the most detail in this one, um, where the Egyptian is beating a Hebrew slave. And of course, Moses steps in. He sees it kind of like with the Pharaoh's daughter last week. You see and you respond because that's what you do. The next one. There's two Hebrew brothers in fighting, right? Now he's going to step in and try to stop that. Well, what's Jesus doing in his day? There's a whole lot of infighting between brothers, right? What's the psalm say? How wonderful it is when brothers get along. Isn't it great? The next one, uh, a couple verses later, is Jethro's daughter. So he then is off to the land of Midian. The very first thing that happens is an episode of injustice. He steps up and drives away the shepherds. And what we find there is, you'll see, is the word for save. It's uh, to save. It says, our, my uh, NAV says rescue, but he's, it's an act of salvation. He's delivering them. The Egyptian taskmaster is going to be the one that we'll pay the most attention to. But ultimately, this is how the Bible communicates Moses' character. And you read those and you go, aha, he doesn't like injustice because it just told us three times in a row without really ever saying it. So we read between the lines. Okay, so let's go then. Um, I'm on number three on your front page. So I, what I want to do is read Exodus 2, verses 11 and 12, and I'm going to pick apart some ideas that come out of this confrontation with the Egyptian taskmaster to make sure that we're not uh, spinning things in there that, are not, that aren't there. So, starting at verse 11, it says, One day after Moses had grown up, I'll, I'll talk about this one in a minute, 
he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. I put the Hebrew on there. We're not going to try to go too deep into it. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. And then it says, looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Very short little episode here. But I want you to notice the reason I put the Hebrew on there is because uh, we can see this word beating uh, comes from a Hebrew word, nakah. But if you look down when Moses kills the Egyptian, you've got the same Hebrew word, at least a, a derivative of it. And that Hebrew word can mean uh, to strike, but it can mean to strike uh, in a life-threatening way. It can mean to kill. So it's got a broad range to it. If I just read English uh, beating, I don't necessarily think life-threatening beating, but uh, scholars, at least on the Hebrew scholars, say it's likely uh, a life-threatening beating, which is why Moses is stepping in in the way that he does. So we'll talk about that here in a second, because that's important if Moses has high sensitivity to injustice. Okay, so look at verse uh, the very first verse we did. Uh, one day after Moses had grown up, how old was Moses? He was 40, because he's about to leave his household. Now, where do we get that number 40? Does the Old Testament tell us that Moses was 40? And by the way, I'm asking the question. You can probably guess that the answer is no. It actually doesn't tell us that he was, the Old Testament doesn't tell us he was 40. And so where we find that number 40 is in the New Testament. And it's in Stephen's speech in front of the Sanhedrin. That's in Acts chapter 7. So what you find are a couple traditions. because. All they know is one day after Moses has grown up. And now the first question, if you study this your whole life, is, well, how old was he? And now you get traditions that are floating around. One tradition says he was 20 when he left the household. Another tradition says he was 40. And which one does Stephen clarify in his speech? That he was 40. So we get the idea that he's 40. From Stephen's speech. But if you read this Stephen's speech and say, where did he get that number? You won't find it in Exodus. So there had been uh, a whole lot of traditions built up about Moses that you don't find in the text because the text is so vague and they start filling in the blanks. And then, of course, Stephen tells us the answer. But there's always these questions on forums. People say, where did Stephen find that? Or where, how did he know that? Right? It's just as people are telling and retelling the story, these questions pop up. So I just wanted to point, that, point out, um, because there's another tradition, it says he went out where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. And there's another tradition that says Moses left his Pharaoh's palace 
and worked right along with the Hebrew people, taking on their own suffering. So if you read in Hebrews 11, you'll see something that looks very similar to that, which you think, well, where did they get that idea? Not in Exodus. So this is the hard part about Exodus. Sometimes it's so vague, you don't know. You don't know how to exactly interpret what they're saying. And of course, people have to fill in the blanks. And we do the same thing in our own way with the New Testament, but we're so used to it, we often don't know that, we're, that we might be doing it. So, okay, I just wanted to point those out. That's why it's important to read Acts chapter 7. Watch how Stephen's making the argument and notice what things aren't in Exodus, and then read Hebrews 11. Same thing. You'll say, huh, where did he get that from? And then that's a whole nother place you can go explore. It's kind of like the stories behind the text is what we would say. So, okay, um, next, he saw an Egyptian beating, and like I said, beating one of his own people. And this word beating, of course, Nahum Sarna, in his commentary on Exodus, says, yeah, it's a, it's a, this word would have the connotation of a life-threatening event. Now, if Moses sees a life-threatening event, what's he going to do? If he has a strong sense of uh, sense of of justice, he's going to step in. The next sentence, looking this way and that and seeing no one, you know, and we tend to think Moses knows he's about to kill the guy, but that's not necessarily true. It might be, and would likely be, if you are going to side with a slave versus an Egyptian, you've committed treason in Egypt. And if you're part of Pharaoh's palace that goes against the Egyptian people, it's scandalous. You're going to get kicked out of the palace. You're going to get kicked out of your house. Why is Pharaoh upset? Because of someone died or because the guy who did it is coming out of his household? So scholars think when he's looking this way and that, He's very concerned about looking treasonous to the Egyptian pharaoh. So then he strikes him. The strike then kills him. And that's the same Hebrew word that we saw above. So, okay. Now, why would they think that? Where would they get this idea? Um, well, first of all, it has to do with his sense of injustice, right? So Moses isn't going to set out to kill anybody. He's just going to stop the actions. And we actually have a commandment in Leviticus that's going to help us understand what Moses is doing. And so what I want to do is take a look at this commandment, because in English, it's not always translated. Uh, well, I, I, think, I don't think it's always translated correctly, but let's take a look at it. So here's what I want you to do. Turn to Leviticus chapter 19, and then look at verse 16. If there's ever a chapter to memorize of Scripture, Leviticus 19 is a great candidate where we find the command to love your neighbor as yourself. I only want to look at the second half of Leviticus 19.16. Now, I have to show you a couple different versions of this verse, Leviticus 19.16, because the version you have will influence the way that you understand what it means. So this is the NIV. And the NIV says, do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. 
Now, when we hear that, do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. You tend to think the emphasis is placed on your behavior so that your neighbor doesn't get hurt, right? Like driving recklessly. Don't drive recklessly. You endanger your neighbor's life. Don't build a pit in your front yard. And if you do, you got to put a fence around it. You'll endanger your, your neighbor's life. Something like that. But that's not the traditional way of understanding this verse. And so I want to show you a couple different uh, versions, and one that I think will get us the closest to what it means. If we look, this is going to be the Jewish Publication Society. Jewish Publication Society says, Neither shall you stand idly by the blood of your neighbor. So stand idly by, and then the, in, in Hebrew it says the blood of your neighbor. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to stand idly by the blood of your neighbor? Does that mean don't do anything that endangers them? Or is there another way of looking at that verse? And the answer, of course, is yes, there is another way of looking at it. And the traditional way of understanding that verse, at least in the Hebrew mind, this is from the New Living Translation. And I put a couple, um, yeah, I put this one on your handout. Um, do not stand idly by when your neighbor's life is threatened. And it literally means stand by the blood of your neighbor. But what does that mean? Hey, if your neighbor's life is being threatened, what are you supposed to do? Stop the thing from happening, right? So don't stand idly by your, when it comes to your neighbor's life. This is what Moses is doing. Because if we take that beating as a life-threatening beating, Moses is going to step in and stop it. And sometimes you have to stop it using force. It's the principle that comes out of the Old Testament or even the New Testament to save a human life is the most important thing. I mean, the, the way the Egyptians look at it, you can beat a Hebrew slave and kill him. Who cares? It's just a slave. But that's not. That's not what Moses, he's going to stop that Egyptian. And oh, by the way, when he strikes, he kills the Egyptian. So it's not murder. It's more in the line of self-defense. And it's following, actually, a commandment that would come out of uh, God's commandments to say, do not sit idly by when someone's life is on the line. Save a human life, even if it means you'll be ostracized from your household. And that's what Moses does here. So. This is probably, at least in my opinion, the most correct reading of that sentence, and I wish we would more of our Bibles would translate it this way because it's really important to recognize how much God wants to save a human life and that our actions are directly uh, impact that. So um, I didn't put this on your sheet, but I want to show you at least one. This is a, a Jewish commentator from the 11th century. He's called Rashi. If you look up Rashi, you'll, you'll find all about him. He's a medieval Jewish commentator. And when he sees this, uh, this command, he says this, you shall not stand over the blood of your neighbor. This means you shall not idly watch him die when you're able to save him. Right? What do we do when uh, Hitler is trying to wipe out of innocent people? You stop him. 
and you do whatever you can. If he has tanks, you get something that'll take out a tank. If he has planes, you get planes that'll take out those. It's whatever you do to stop death or the, de- the, the death of an innocent life. So, And then he says, for example, you must save the one who is drowning in a river or one who's being attacked by wild animals or bandits. When you can, of course, right? If you can't swim, don't compound it by jumping in the river and, you know, now you got two people that need saving. But this seems to be the context. And I just want to, the reason I want to emphasize that is he's not, you know, we should not confuse it as some kind, as a murder. He's not setting out to try to kill the guy. He's trying to stop somebody from killing a Hebrew. And in the course of doing that, through the same striking or beating or whatever, he kills the Egyptian. And then, of course, things begin to unfold because now the gig is up, right? He's on the side of the Hebrews, and Pharaoh is not going to be happy about that. So this all goes back to his intolerance for injustice, which, again, that's something that all of us can learn to um, emulate in the world, to have an intolerance for injustice wherever we find it. So, for example, let's read about what's going to happen next, because we have this picture of him driving away the, the uh, shepherds. This now is afterwards. So if you look at verse 15 to 17 in Exodus chapter 2. So verse 15. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. And just notice how quickly the events are moving on. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs of water for their flock, or fill the troughs to water their flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away. But Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. And the word rescue there is the word for save. He becomes a savior. He's delivering them from that particular situation. So even when he sees people that are not even his own, he will step in to stop an injustice. Okay, so real quick, that is, uh, that was not real quick, sorry. Just to stop for a moment and think about Moses' character, why God chose him for the task that he was going to do, and then to recognize how much that reflects Jesus. Does Jesus, does he have an intolerance for uh, for injustice? Of course he does, right? Be careful who you think you're going to marginalize in society there, people, because I'm one day going to be the judge and who's going to judge you. And, of course, the religious leaders are not happy about that when Jesus points out their flaws. So, important that we can use this text to uh, look at Moses' character. Okay, now, totally switching gears a bit, But I want to do is now flip this over and say, okay, now he's a type of Messiah. Let's compare some of these things in Moses to Jesus. So we're going to do a a bit of comparison. So first of all, Jesus in the Gospels is actually presented as a second Moses. It's a type of Exodus. I mentioned a couple weeks ago, while they're in the transfiguration, it's Jesus being transfigured, talking to Moses. And Luke says they're talking about his exodus, using the same word, exodus. So, he's a type of second Moses. He's showing you the path to deliver you. Now, it's not the bondage of slavery to a pharaoh, 
but it's the bondage of slavery to sin. Jesus has no tolerance for injustice whatsoever. And then Jesus, in, in a sense, is encapsulating all of these messianic characteristics so that in one person, he becomes everything. So, if we go down this list, and this is not a, um, this is not a complete list. There's more. I just knew we wouldn't have enough time. If we go down this list, and if we say, what can we compare from the story in Exodus about Moses to the stories in the gospel that the, the people would say, ah, I hear, I hear the echoes of Moses in that. Are they saying that Jesus is the, is the last redeemer of Israel? So, the first thing, I think this one's pretty obvious to everybody, but both children, when they're born, are in danger. Their life is threatened. Their life is threatened by a paranoid king, or in Moses' case, Pharaoh. So Pharaoh's paranoid. He threatens the life of the male babies. When we get to Matthew in, G, in, uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, it's Herod. He's a paranoid king who then doesn't want his throne usurped by the birth of another king, and you get the slaughter of the innocents that happens at Bethlehem. So they both start out having their life threatened. Moses, as you'll read eventually in chapter 4, he goes off to Midian 40 years. Then God says very explicitly, it's Exodus 4 verse 19, we're not going to look at it, but he says very explicitly, the people who wanted to kill you are dead. So go back to Egypt, and now you're going to deliver the, the, my people. Well, what happens to Jesus? They go down to Egypt, an angel shows up to Joseph and says, the people who are trying to kill the child are now dead. It's almost the same exact sentence. They're now dead. Get up and go back to Israel. Now, just that right there, your mind, because you have Exodus memorized, would say, wow, that sounds very familiar to the Moses story. He's a deliverer, obviously. Jesus is a deliverer. Uh, Moses has five books, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In, in the book of Matthew, Matthew structures his gospel. He's probably the most—Matthew's gospel has the most uh, references back to Moses. Matthew structures his gospel in five distinct speeches. And where does Jesus teach? Well, or, I'm sorry, Moses teaches on a mountain, and Jesus teaches on the mountain. So in Matthew, it's not just a mountainside, it's the mountain. Well, what does that point your mind to? Ah, back to Moses. Um, let's go do some more. Moses is rejected by his people. Jesus is rejected by his people. Moses will eventually be appointed by God to become their judge and ruler. Jesus will be appointed, is appointed by God to become the judge and ruler. Moses mediates a covenant. Jesus mediates. You can see where how this is going, right? I mean, by the time you get done, you're like, oh, this is basically repeating the story of Moses. And now Jesus is going to be the next one to deliver or lead Israel out of their plight. Uh, last one, 40 days and 40 nights that Moses spends with God on a mountain. Who else? Or I'm sorry, with no food and water uh, up on Mount Sinai. Jesus, 40 days and 40 nights without food and water in the desert. 
right there, you can see how important it is to understand Moses and, and what he means to that first century audience so that when Jesus shows up in action or as the gospel writers are putting the words down, crafting it in a way to make sure they tell you the things necessary that you start thinking, ah, it's just like Moses. It's the another deliverer is here. And there's way more. There's the Passover lamb. Anyways, hopefully that helps you because we, this is something that's really important for us to be able to fully understand the New Testament is to fully understand something about Moses and how those types are being brought into Jesus. Um, let's see. Then, okay, let's do a quick review. So Moses is a type, just like Joseph or David or any of the other ones that come out of the Old Testament, a type of Messiah. Uh, one reason to study Moses is to understand or emulate his character, because as a human being, there are characters that Moses has, um, characteristics, or I'm sorry, his character that we can emulate. Another one, I, I forgot to mention this one. There's at one point, Moses says, I'm willing to die. Don't kill the people of Israel. You can, if you're going to kill the people of Israel, you got to take me with them. Blot me out of the book of life. Right? There's a, I'll suffer a death with them, or I'll suffer a death even on their behalf. And what does Jesus do? He suffers the death on their behalf. So um, there's a lot going on. But I think what happens is, when we, the more we understand Exodus, the more we understand Moses, the more the New Testament starts to speak to us in ways that we didn't hear before. And it helps us understand the disciples and Paul and all those other first century readers that would have um, recognized what was going on with Jesus. So, okay, Exodus part. Five. So that was Moses as, as a, a Messiah or a deliverer. Oh, let me say real quick. Um, next week, we're going to move to the burning bush. And when we look at the part of uh, the burning bush, uh, we want to look at God's, uh, in God's name in a sense. His name, well, yud heh vav that name is similar to when Moses says, what if they ask me your name? And God says, I am who I am. And we're going to look at that translation, I am who I am, versus another way to look at it. But it's, it's expressing an entirely different God than you've ever known before. And so we're going to spend a little bit of time digging through that phrase, I am who I am, or however we can understand it. But that'll be, ne that'll be for next week. We hope you enjoyed today's lesson, and that it helps you gain a deeper understanding of the biblical text. Fig Tree Ministries is an educational nonprofit, and we're 100% listener-supported. If our lessons have been valuable to you in your study of the Bible, we ask that you support our work with a financial donation. Whether it's a one-time donation, or you become a monthly supporter, we appreciate your generous gift. Donations are easy through our website, figtreeteaching.com, and you can become a regular supporter for as little as $5 per month. We've included a link to our donation page in the description section below. 
Online giving through our donation partner, DonorBox, is easy and secure. By setting up your DonorBox account, you'll be able to easily track your donations when it comes time to doing your taxes. We thank all of our donors for their generous gifts, and as you go into the world, may the words of number six be with you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you shalom.